Just read it. You have to be upset, Theo. None of the girls has got one. Only I have got one. It always upsets me. And now this new cousin comes here as beautiful as an <laughs> angel, and she hasn't got one either. So I know it can't be any good. From sobbing to smug. I know it can't be any good. I wanted to jump in real quick before the episode got underway and uh, kind of explain what exactly we're talking about because we realized that if you haven't read the same chapters we had, it might be a little bit confusing for you. Yes, we are talking in this episode about book one of the very long Chinese novel, Story of the Stone or Dream of the Red Chamber. It's uh, in the edition that we read, it's divided into like five books, I think. And in book one, we read chapters one, three, five, and 16 through 18. Our guest, Jeanette, recommended that we read um, chapter one just to get a good intro and to kind of show us how interesting the frame narrative is because all of the characters in chapter one who you think are going to be very important end up not being important at all. We learn that there's a, a magical stone who's going to be transformed into a human and live out his life and learn his lessons. And then at the end of his life, he writes down what happened to him. And that's the book we're reading. But we're also introduced to this whole family, because they overhear some monks who are taking the stone to get incarnated. And you think the family's going to be a big deal. You learn about their, like, rise and fall and the disappearance of their daughter and, like, them moving to the countryside and losing their house and losing all their money and the dad running away to be a monk in the countryside. And you think they're going to be really important, but they... Like, two of them come back, and none of them are major characters. That's funny. I understand the importance of reading the first chapter to get a sense of why it's so strange and weird, because that's one of the best things about it. But it is pretty funny to think, I need you to read this first chapter so that you understand that none of these people come back and they're not important. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, then we read chapter three the scholar who's the neighbor of the family that you're introduced to in this the first and second chapter which that scholar ends up taking a little girl who is one of the main characters to the wealthy family where she will be raised and grow up and she meets the other main character so the little girl's name is Dayu, and she's a reincarnated flower and the little boy she meets is Bao Yu, who is the, or I guess not reincarnated, he's the incarnated stone. And they eventually have a sort of like star-crossed lovers dynamic that's very famous. And they're also cousins, and the cousin that Theo mentions in his introduction is her. He's the stone, and he's talking about the flower girl. And then when we read chapter five, the other member of their love triangle arrives. We don't end up talking about her in the episode because she doesn't actually do anything much in any of the chapters but the reason Jeanette wanted us to read chapter five is because there's a very very famous weird dream sequence where the character of Bao Yu falls asleep but he ends up like going to fairyland basically like this kind of magical bureaucratic heaven 
and being introduced to this sort of fairy goddess of love, and he sees all these different offices and experiences, like a fairy uh, concert, and he is married to a younger fairy who kind of looks like his two cousins that he's involved, he will be involved in a love triangle with. And it's all planned out. The point of it is the, the fairy has planned out all of these experiences for him, and it's because his ancestors have requested that she do this so that he can become more serious in his real to life. try to make him less silly they want to kind of go ahead and get it out of him like make him a man right but l- not make him a man in the sense that gross people <laughs> use it they just mean like he's yeah. got too much frivolity in his heart perhaps like it's kind of like making a kid smoke a whole pack of cigarettes maybe if we just give him all of this wonderful stuff, he'll get sick of it for some reason. Immersion therapy. Yeah, okay. Uh, So then Jeanette also asked us to read chapters 16 through 18 because that kind of contains a self-contained arc, which is that Baoyu's oldest sister has left the family. I I feel like I kind of explained this a little bit better than the other chapters, but she has left the family to become one of the emperor's concubines, and she's allowed to visit home. So 16 through 18 is the family preparing for her visit and getting the grounds ready for her because they have to build like a whole new wing with a bunch of new gardens and there's like a little poetry competition before she arrives and then a poetry competition after she arrives and then uh she gives everyone in the family wondrous gifts which i wish we had actually talked about because that was very (laughs) odyssey-esque all of the gifts are like listed out (laughs) very specifically these three get this gift (laughs) these three get this gift the grandma she gets the best gifts of all the head ants get almost as many gifts as the grandma but not quite and the servants they get all these gifts and then uh she leaves and hopes that she can visit them again so that's the basic plot structure of what we're going to be talking about i hope that it makes sense to you a little bit now there are a lot of characters the main names that you should remember going forward are bao yu is the boy who used to be a stone and dai yu is the girl who used to be a flower. <laughs> Those are the main ones to keep in mind while we're talking. <laughs> I think that is very helpful yeah. to say the characters. Okay, <laughs> great. So now Theo retroactively understands the episode he recorded and edited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'm a I'm a fan of Jeanette's book that they published a couple years ago. It's very good. It's about uh, if fairyland was discovered during you know victorian times of course the victorians would try to send missionaries to convert them to christianity so the book is about like two of those missionaries it's very good uh not for everybody like there are some themes that would be kind of difficult for some people to read so you know go ahead and check up on it ahead of time but it's it's very good um anyway so we thought it would be nice we reached out to jeanette and said hey We'd love for you to come on the podcast. Is there a book that you'd like to talk about? And she said, well, I am actually currently really, really obsessed with this book, which is the canonical work in like the Chinese canon. Would you guys want to talk about that? And we said, yeah, that would be great. Give us a little bit of variety, which as we know from what Shakespeare is the spice of life. So here we go. We fired him. So we don't really care what he thinks. I also said that. Oh yeah. Theo thinks it is. I wonder if that was Shakespeare. (laughs) Variety is the spice of life. Hmm, Oh, it wasn't Shakespeare. It was William Cowper. It it was Chekhov's spice. 
<laughs> Chekhov's variety. <laughs> Hemingway's life. Yeah, look, we haven't read Shakespeare on the pod yet, so you can't expect me to know anything about him. We did. We read the Sonnet 98. No, we haven't read all of his stuff. <laughs> we can't say we've read Shakespeare until we've read every single thing he's written. I just assume most sayings are Shakespeare or Frank Benjamin Franklin, and I'm usually right, but this time I was wrong. No, you assume they're either Shakespeare or Frank. Theo's dad, Frank. he's a wise man Jackie and I ended up really liking the book we thought it was so interesting and at some point we are going to definitely finish volume one and hopefully then we'll be able to get Jeanette back on the pod and talk about that in maybe a more linear fashion for you all cool hooray on to the episode (laughs) welcome to the episode hello everyone welcome to the fire the cannon podcast the podcast where usually we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. We're not doing that this time. We'll get into that a little further later. I remain your host, Rachel. As ever, I'm your host, Jackie. I'm the producer, Theo. And this week, we have a special guest with us again. We have the author of the multi-award winning book, Under the Pendulum Sun. You don't want me to be effusive? I can take it back and just call it a book. (laughs) (laughs) We have someone who wrote a book called Under the Pendulum Sun. (laughs) It's okay. It's okay, I guess. Yeah, it's fine. It is fine. (laughs) It's a good book. I've read it. I've read it twice now. Yeah. Um, So anyway, that person is the author Jeanette, and we're so happy to have them with us today. Hello. Welcome, Jeanette. Thank you. Yay. And... We will be covering an epic classic, part of it, part of an epic classic. In English, it's usually, it's either known by the story of the stone or dream of the red chamber. Maybe, Jeanette, if you're comfortable, we can have you explain it a little better. Yes. I do want to say, this week, Jackie and I will be playing the role that Theo usually plays, and Jeanette is sort of the our guide to this book. Um, well, hello. Um, I'm Jeanette, and I'm here to tell you that you should read uh, The Story of the Stone. Starting off strong. <laughs> um, well, it's... Oh, God. It, it is the Chinese classic. Um, it's obnoxiously long. It, it's, it's just so long. And none of this is good information. This is not helping you want to read this. Um, you don't have to read it all at once. It's broken up into yeah. multiple books. Yeah, and the chapters are actually very digestible. And you had us read, because kindly you uh, you gave us a selection of chapters rather than telling us to read the whole thing. Yes. Which would have been thousands of pages, literally yes. thousands. Yes. <laughs> So should we say like what edition we read and all that so the readers could do it if they want? Yes. That's a that's a good start. <laughs> well, do you want to explain why you recommended the penguin edition to us? Yeah. Um so yeah, Stir the Stone is it's a story about a stone. That's a good start. <laughs> it's one of those books that follows technically the life of uh, a young boy as he becomes a young man and he falls in love many times and all sorts of terrible things happen to him. It's very comparable to something like ugh, like like a David Copperfield, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Like if you're kind of thinking about Victorian literature, I'm sure I'm going to get like hate mail for that comparison now. <laughs> We've done much worse. <laughs> if we get hate mail, I'll be shocked and I'll actually be happy because that means be enough people are listening. <laughs> Any mail is good mail. <laughs> they're going to do that. Yeah. yeah, all yeah. mail is good mail. Um, so, so yeah, Story of the Stone. Um, 
And I told you to read the Penguin edition because it's it's probably the most accessible. Um, it's got some notes, um, and it's just it's it's the one that's all in English and is is relatively readable. There, there's a couple of other ones out there, but it is it is probably the more recent one. Uh, the Yang one's okay, but arguably more literal. And then you've got like a whole bunch of like Victorian people. <laughs> but it's just one of those books that's so big that. No one really mm-hmm. wants to undertake translating it again. <laughs> I, I just, but Story of the Stone is just one of those really weird books. Mm-hmm. I think it, it kind of people remember it as this this love story, mm-hmm. and the people also think of it as this kind of most encyclopedic chronicling of Chinese culture mm-hmm. because it it kind of goes into immense detail about things like medicine and theology and architecture and outfits. aesthetics <laughs> outfits so yeah. much about outfits For sure. family relations <laughs> family yeah. relations and, and poetry right. and it, it's this encyclopedic documentation of this young man's life and and it is drenched in nostalgia mm-hmm. for a lot of Chinese readers um, and you know given the immense amount of change that has happened in China I think the idea that it kind of meticulously documents and laments this kind of bygone age that has a lot of resonance a lot of bad things happen to the characters mm-hmm. and it observes the feudal society in a way that is whilst never entirely explicitly condemnatory, with a few notable exceptions, it also doesn't wholly celebrate it either. And I think that that ambiguity, that constant tension in the story is it what is what's very intoxicating about it all the more so because it its ending is in flux um mm-hmm. the first 80 chapters um circulated as a manuscript for many years and then it was later published with an extra 40 chapters which are new mm. um a lot of uh, textual analysis and like computer crunching has and, and as well as just like people who have eyes have noticed that the last 40 chapters are written in a way that is very different to the first 80 and not everything foreshadowed in the first 80 comes to pass. So there is something fundamentally unsatisfying about reading um, Story of the Stone, which is what makes it kind of sit in your brain for forever. And when you, um, when Rachel approached me about um, talking about the classics, I ended up saying, oh yeah, we should totally read this because I was just completely obsessed with Story of the Stone at the time. <laughs> I hope you're still obsessed because we're doing an episode about it. Because <laughs> that wasn't that long ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> now you're tormented by it. Yeah. And, and like, I, I always hesitate to kind of recommend it in that sense because it, it is a book that once you kind of get into it, it kind of sort of gets under your skin mm-hmm. and it doesn't satisfy you. Unlike, say, a million other classic books, there isn't a definitive ending. Well, right. it, it ends. It definitely ends. There is there is a last chapter. Um, and there I are... don't know. There could be more coming, right? Like, no? Oh, people are frozen. Yeah, you guys were all frozen. I made a I made a joke and then you all froze. So it seemed as though everyone <laughs> just completely went silent and just stared. So that didn't make me feel happy. Would you like to make the joke again? Yeah, do it I again. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure the timing will feel perfect this time. Editing will make it happen. <laughs> <laughs> to catch us up, the last thing I heard you say was, it definitely does end. And then I said, what if, what if there's more to come? Like, what if somebody writes another 40 chapters? Oh, yeah. And then it was like dead <laughs> silence. And I was like, oh my God, I shouldn't have said that. 
<laughs> that was the exact wrong this thing to say. Te- technically speaking, um, there there are unofficial continuations fanfic. There was so much fanfic written of this back in the Qing Dynasty, mm. which is to usually to correct the ending to make it mm. different from how it is. Um, and there are modern attempts as well as people who are like, "Oh yes, I totally found this manuscript in oh. my attic. It's the <laughs> real ending." Um, so that exists as well. And that makes it kind of like a group cultural project almost. Like, that's interesting. Um, well, because of the lack of copyright, when <laughs> novels became more of a thing in um, during the Qing Dynasty, which is kind of like the, the 18th, 19th century, um, they became quite fashionable. And, and there was a lot of interest in writing continuations to all the classics that we know of today. So like Journey to the West has like, half a dozen sequels no one reads them because in general they're considered to be inferior and just not they're considered generally to be quite pulpy sure but there, there are a lot of sequels to um all the kind of quote-unquote famous uh chinese novels and and one of them that is in the canon now is technically a continuation is technically fanfic so Outlaws of the Marsh has uh, a fanfic, which I believe, um, not Peony Pavilion, it's the other is one. Is Outlaws of the Marsh another, is it another book in this um, saga? Like another volume? No, um, Outlaws of the Marsh is is another of those kind of, is, is another one of those novels which are kind of written in that era of like the great flourishing of um, kind of Chinese vernacular literature. Okay. Um, it's the one with the million uh, heroes. Oh, they're, okay. they're outlaws, they live in the marsh, and uh, they're fighting <laughs> the good fight against the empire. Okay. There's like a hundred something heroes. Um, there, there's so many heroes that they kind of get used for things in like, things get themed around them. Ah. And they all have like distinctive opera masks and they show up in like various operas. It's, it's this whole like Marvel extended universe yeah. experience. Um, <laughs> but there is like one definitive novel of it now um but then there's like a lot of spin-off work so as i say like the lack of copyright and means that whilst like say journey to the west has a definitive novel right but the novel is a collection is is like a a rewrite of a lot of pre-existing folklore and from that there are lots of spin-off operas and and stories and continuations and and even today to this day they keep they cannot stop making journey to the west movies (laughs) now is the theory that um, Cao Shui-Qin died or quit writing or wrote the end, but it got lost? Um, the theory is he died. <gasps> oh, okay. Um, yeah, he, he just he just died. He, he was living in relative poverty at the time. So um, so his life story is basically he had, he, he grew up in, in quite a lot of splendor. Um, he was from this kind of bond servant family to the emperor. Oh. And it, his backstory is basically like that of Bao Yu's in the book that um, he grew up in, in luxury. And then a number of terrible things happened to his family that more or less n- mirror the novel. And um, yeah, he, he did not have a great time and um, ended up um, living in poverty, uh, painting stones for a living, just for that extra little mm. bit of resonance. <laughs> yes, uh, Plum and the Golden Vase, or sometimes the Golden Lotus, <laughs> I remember is as Gumping Moy, which is the the name as pronounced in Cantonese. Mm. It's it's sort of fanfic, like it's it's porn fanfic at that of um, mm-hmm. Outlaws of the Marsh, and that is considered like a classic as well. It's one of the six uh, great classical Chinese novels. Uh, it, it's well. Yeah, it, it's a spin-off of um, Outlaws of the Marsh slash Water Margin. Um, basically, one of the characters 
from it, instead of dying terribly as he does in the book, has a series of long, convoluted sexual adventures. <laughs> it, it really set, like it is precisely the sort of fanfic you are thinking of. I'm not saying it doesn't have appeal to people both then and now. Um, I think there's a, the sort of idea that has it, it's sort of like also a novel of manners. Right. Speaking of the convoluted sexual adventures, like, <laughs> have you read much like Haruki Murakami, for example? Yes, I, I do know who you mean. It's the Japanese author who has that weird relationship with writing where he writes in Japanese and translates into English or vice versa. Yeah, well, also, I feel like every book that I've read of his involves the weirdest sex scenes. And but there <laughs> when I was reading um, this in chapter six, there's the first one where I was like, I wasn't expecting to see something like this in a book from like the 1700s. Jackie. Um, you read chapter six? Yeah. Was I not supposed to? No. I know I didn't have to. I thought I, I thought no, you no, said no, I do. could. No, please do. No, no, no. But you should, what you should have done is told me. So then I would have also read it. All of the chapters end with a huge cliffhanger. And then it's like, and if you want to know what happens next, go to the next chapter. And yes. I'm like, yeah, I do want to know what happens next. So I had to go on. Literally, Theo, the final sentence is like, if you want to see the continuation of this, you have to read yeah, chapter Or whatever. if you want to know what dreadful thing happens next, you have to read the next page. So I didn't read all of the chapters in between, but for some reason from five to six, I was like, I have to keep going. This is when <laughs> Bao, Bao Yu is in the chamber and he's having his dream. And can I just like say what happens? Like, yeah, Of course. Yeah. Who are you asking? Go ahead. Uh, Jeanette, I don't care about your opinion. <laughs> so I guess this is what I kind of thought was going okay, to wait, be Okay, wait, 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 Jackie, yes. wait. Before you do that, the frame narrative of the book is that there's a stone and at some point it turns into a human, a human boy, and he goes through his whole life and then becomes a stone again with his life story written on him. Yeah. And so someone reads the story and then that's what the book is. Mm -hmm. They basically give the stone a chance to go through life as a human soul. So Bao Yu is the human name of the stone. Yes. And yeah. also before the stone becomes a human, there's some kind of flower that it turns into a girl and they are sort of in love. And her name is Day Yu. And so they're both, yeah. A monk says like, this flower is going to cry and cry and cry to pay the stone back for turning it into a human. So there's like a faded lover's situation from before the stone became a boy. Right. Yeah. Um, shall we start at the start, which where I just go ask you like, hey, yeah. so what do you make of these chapters I made you read? Yes. Are they weird? Let's do that. And then Jackie will go to chapter six. Okay. Yes. I think that's <laughs> it was just to set up to say this is similar to Murakami, but nobody yes. I think has is as familiar with those but because they are very weird so i know you wanted to ask us what we thought would happen after chapter one <laughs> yeah <Yes. laughs> or, or just what do you make of it is it weird yes how much frame story is too much frame story i was like oh story of the stone i wonder where that comes from and then when it was like hello i am a stone and i get turned <laughs> into a human here's my story i thought oh the stone pops in immediately nice. <laughs> and i thought it was so funny like i wasn't expecting i don't know what i was expecting i think every time i hear about a book that's like kind of before the like 20th century I just assume it's going to be very serious and not that funny which is not 
ever necessarily the case. Mm. But it's so funny. It's this little stone, and he's like, every other stone that got created got used to build the sky, and I'm the only one that got left out, and it's so sad, and so that's why. I'm depressed, so I just fly all over the place, and I make myself (laughs) bigger or smaller at will. Yeah. But I'm depressed. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it's it's a lot of frame story. This is one of those books that has like five or six begin like you you feel like you're reading the opening chapter and then you're like, oh, here's another opening chapter, and it just keeps going. <laughs> Most of the characters in chapter one, they didn't appear relevant. Yeah. So uh the main characters are there's a scholar in his house and he overhears two monks talking to the stone saying, like, we're going to turn you into a human for a while. And he (laughs) runs outside, and he's like, oh, my gosh, tell me more. And they refuse, and they, like, go on their way, and then they come back, and then the perspective shifts to that scholar and his family for the rest of the chapter. So I, in my predictions, I was like, I'm assuming it's going to be about these people. So I wrote (laughs) predictions about them, and only one of them appears later, and barely at all. It's dreamlike, right? Like, you get all these different starts, and then that person kind of disappears, and it goes into something else, and it's dreams within dreams within dreams. Yes. You have different endings, yeah, that feel different. I feel like the whole thing is just very um, surreal. I liked that the guy who finds the stone is like, what's the point of this story? Why should I write it down? And then the stone says like, no, you don't understand. This story is great. Let me explain why it's so good and what the values of the story are. (laughs) And then at the end of the chapter, the guy's like, yeah, this is a great story. I'm going to write it down. (laughs) Was that to convince the readers that it was going to be a good book? Maybe. (laughs) A stone said it was good. (laughs) Yeah, the stone in this story said that the story is good. So it must be. (laughs) Yeah, the stone also said good things about this podcast so (laughs) (laughs) but i think it also kind of gives you a key on how to read the book Mm. because it's such a ginormous endless sequence of side characters yeah it's just so messy in the best (laughs) i'm not good at selling this book to you it's it's it is fine it's very fun it is but I, i i think that oddity to it like it people who are trying to write literary analysis of this book love this because it's like oh yes here's the authorial intent right oh yeah so i found it so it's the guy who finds the stone kind of reads his inscription and says okay i mean i the story of yours might be interesting but it he lists out it a it contains no discoverable dynastic period and b contains no examples of moral grandeur among its characters and he says it's basically just a bunch of girls (laughs) who are just pretty or have some trifling talent and i don't see why anybody would want to read this book and the stone goes on this like three or four or five no sorry it's like two whole pages um, just monologue, say, like trashing all other romances, saying like you know, yeah, you have boudoir romances, you have these other kinds of just they all suck, um, but mine, mine is yeah, good. <laughs> yeah. He, surely my number of females whom I spent half a lifetime studying are preferable to that kind of stuff. And so at the end, the guy's like, you know what? Yeah, that's a good story. I'm gonna write it down. And then the rest <laughs> of the book <laughs> ensues. The stone is a not like other girls stone like my girls are much better than anyone else's girls it was, it was making me think of like the rudolph the red-nosed reindeer song like you have these romances you have these but uh-huh. have you Do heard you about recall? the greatest of all yeah. i think one of the things about his portraits of female characters which admittedly mm. in in the selection i sent you that's it doesn't really come to the fore is that there are a lot of them yes 
to the point where you're like, these have to be referencing real people. Because mm -hmm. if you were designing this as a narrative, if you were making adaption of this, you would cut half of these characters. Theo, <laughs> he couldn't keep track of the five Bennett sisters. There are literally like the 12 <laughs> beauties of the province. And then there are also like the main character's grandma, all of his aunts. Like, Well, there's 12 main girls. beauty and then yeah. there's 12 sub beauties. And then there's about 30 <laughs> other girls that don't even deserve there are all to these get put beauties. in there. <laughs> They're all hot. That's important. Yes. yes. Um, no, and they all have tragic stuff lying in wait for them. Like you feel like, okay, well, you know, you need the feisty one and the sad one. Like what do you really need more like you know if you're designing this from the start you would sit down and you divide your character traits up and go okay so no duplications yeah but right. they feel like real people insofar as they do duplicate they contradict themselves and mm -hmm. they feel real in that kind of contradictory intangible this is terrible literature because <laughs> the narrative design is terrible but that's what gives it that weird illusion of reality right. and again that's like is this an insult or is this a compliment? I'm yeah. not sure. <laughs> it's like how there's a trope that in books, there can only ever be one guy named John or something, yes. but in real life, you'll meet, you know, 10 Johns. Right. So in this, there's like, here's eight variations of the sad one. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like we talked about Chekhov's gun in a previous episode, which I called Hemingway's gun, and I almost <laughs> did it again. Yes. But this author would 100% introduce a gun or 12 guns and never use it. Yeah. Because it is very real, and the character's... You know, you're not going to mm. find people who perfectly have mutually exclusive traits all of the time. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing, like, where it kind of almost explicitly says it doesn't want you to read a moral or social message into it. Mm. Um, and, you know, spoilers, by the end of the book, there is almost explicit moralizing from, from the author. And that, again, mm. it's why the ending doesn't match the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's why... I feel profoundly unsatisfied by it. And like, I, I read the opening, I read the end. Why doesn't this fit? And most of the time, you know, you're, you read a book like that, you know, you go, I don't care anymore and you throw it away. <laughs> but this one just got under my skin. Like I, and it's sort of like, here, join me in this madness of being weirdly <laughs> obsessed with this. And yeah, like the lack of a dynastic period, that is incredibly unusual in books written like in this era or in a lot of kind of Chinese literature. They, they very much like situating their story in specific eras, despite the fact that, you know, there are obviously telltale signs in this book of where it may or may not be set. I wonder, would you like it? Would you prefer it to be more satisfying? Or is the unsatisfactoriness of it something that you enjoy? It sounds like you both enjoy it and don't enjoy it. <laughs> it's, it's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> I don't want to pretend it's like you will have all the answers by the end. Right. Do you mm. feel like people need to read the last 40 chapters? Or do you feel like it's the first 80 are the core? The canonical. <laughs> so obviously for a long time, people didn't necessarily question the last 40 chapters. Like all of the um, continuations written during the Qing Dynasty continued off the end of the last 40 chapters. So mm. the instability of the ending in some ways is is a more modern construct than I, I like to admit very often. Mm. It really only started coming about when people started like looking for and finding kind of old manuscripts. Wow. Before it was printed, uh, people would literally copy out the book um, mm. and circulate it. And one of the really interesting things about um, novels uh, during this era was that 
because novels were considered very vulgar. This probably doesn't surprise you. Like there's there's a long tradition of people considering novels vulgar in, you know, say English as, as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. They were not considered high art. Mm. Poetry was high art, but, but not novels. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, people started circulating manuscripts of novels where there were these annotations to help you view them as artistically valid. <laughs> much like a, a kind of penguin annotated footnoted edition is there to reassure you that you are reading art that this is worth (laughs) your time worth investing your time in um and and in some ways that's how kind of um novels during the Qing dynasty started becoming more valid like as as Mm. art um and being viewed as art and yeah so um it's a slight frustration to me that i i I can't like no one's kind of bothered to translate an annotated edition because there are two kind of very famous annotated versions story of the stone this none of this is interesting um this is this is (laughs) this is is, is way too deep a cut Um, no this is what we bring you here for because we don't know anything (laughs) yeah (laughs) because it's annotated because there are two kind of um famous annotators of uh, story of the stone one of them is known as red ink stone um and the other one is called mm-hmm. Old Tablet. And they seem to be friends of Cows, um, who knew him when he was younger. In the margins, they would reminisce or allude to other versions of the text. And people have kind of really kind of analyzed and tried to deconstruct the text or understand earlier versions or excavate for earlier versions based on these. And it, it's the kind of obsessive bullshit that I love. <laughs> it is a very unwieldy book. But yes, sorry, uh, chapter, you, you were reading some chapters and that was more interesting. <laughs> Jackie, did you want to say what your predictions were before we... Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I should have written them down, but I Ugh. think my predictions, similar to you, ended up immediately becoming irrelevant mm. because so at the end at the end of chapter one what we have is the scot the young scholar is invited over to the home of his neighbor Shigen, who has um a wife and a very young daughter she's about i think three years old two or three years old yeah and the daughter is brought out by a servant to go just hang out somewhere and watch I think some type of festival at night and then she goes missing. The daughter goes missing and they basically just go crazy trying to find her and can't do it. They lose all their wealth and they have to move to the countryside. So I kind of thought, okay, this girl's gone missing. The scholar her dad had paid for to like go off and take his examinations in the capital. I was like, I feel like he's going to come back and then obviously this girl's going to be found and then there's going to be a love story. So maybe the scholar and the girl are going to get together, even though she's much younger. I thought the girl would end up with the stone because I knew the stone had to be involved somehow. (laughs) You would think. I don't know. I was like, well, why is the scholar there then? Everybody's got to get together with this one girl. (laughs) Everybody. I don't know. I had a feeling she was going to come back and something would happen. But I thought the scholar was going to be a much bigger deal because the narrative makes a point of being like, oh, he was so handsome Mm -hmm. and he was so smart. And but he was poor, and he thought there it was it wasn't fair that he needed money. And then he rose up through the ranks, and he. So yeah. I thought that the book would be more about either him succeeding or him succeeding and then failing and succeeding again, and then that maybe he would help out his former patron, and that the girl would have some adventures and then find her parents and the dad. At one point, her dad 
runs away with a like a Taoist monk or something. Mm-hmm. He just like dips out on Leaves his wife his and wife doesn't alone. tell yeah. her, like doesn't even say, I'm gonna go wander around with this monk. He just leaves. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh well he'll surely he'll come back at some point. And Jeanette, you may have like <laughs> your own feeling about what this book is about, but I know the back of the book basically says like yep. so not a spoiler, Rachel, because Rachel's always calling spoilers on me. <laughs> but you know, you can see basically this family and it's the way it changes over time and they place it within the, the, the Buddhist understanding that everything's an illusion. Karma is important and there's nothing that goes on that is real. And that's pretty apparent like early on again when Bao Yu goes to sleep and has this dream. They explicitly state the reason we brought you here into this dream is because we need you to see that everything that happens is an illusion. Mm. Even in dreams, even in like this fairy world that you're in, and mm-hmm. then especially so in the actual waking world. Mm. So I don't know. I just thought that kind of moral lesson that is brought up very early was very interesting, mm-hmm. especially with the like the structure of the books. So I don't know if you have thoughts about that or. Well, chapter five is like one of the most commonly cited famous chapters because of this whole yeah. kind of elaborate sequence um, where Bao Yu goes into this great dream, um, and yeah, like he he meets. He sees a lot of foreshadowing, mm-hmm. uh, too much, arguably. <laughs> Buckets of spoilers there. And yeah, like he, he has this a moral, a possible moral of the story kind of spelt out to him that everything is an illusion. But he also has advice given to him, you know, that, that you know, he should mm-hmm. not be so as... Buckle down and study. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That, that he should be less obsessed with, um, with girls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the way they teach him this lesson is to say, we're going to educate you in the matters of the flesh and basically say, hurry up and Get it basically <laughs> sexually mature and it gets graphic but like he doesn't have any idea really what sex is or like any idea about wanting it and they put him in this world and say you need to become a man right now so you can just wise up and then they make him go through all these weird sex things which is <laughs> I thought was so funny but like just interesting and counterproductive <laughs> sounds like hazing <laughs> yeah a little bit yep so uh, that was not something I was expecting to see in this book. So I was just found it surprising. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's 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 a very sexual book. Um, well, it's not that explicit, but people definitely have sex in this book. Yeah, yeah. there there are scenes in which sex happens, but it's not like the it, they don't describe it in detail. No, which which again I'm not, which I still wasn't expecting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I did make you read the one where the guy wanks himself to death. So. Oh no, you didn't. I don't <laughs> no, I think. No, I didn't. I don't I think so. <laughs> oh, sorry. Spoilers. Spoilers, everyone. <laughs> yes. What chapter was that? Um, I know that you had mentioned maybe, but I didn't come across it in one of the chapters we read. It's um, <laughs> chapter 12. Ah, uh, we missed it. Yeah, I'm, who, I'm sorry. Who did um, that? Who was it? <laughs> it's uh, 11 to 12. It's a character who hasn't appeared uh, yet oh. for you, but uh, Wang Sifeng, um It was on my list of like, oh, should I make them read the, the that one because it is it is pretty amazing. <laughs> well, it, it'll be a good argument for reading more later on. <laughs> yeah, it, it's eleven to twelve um, for the record. Two whole chapters about it. Um, yeah. So I think it's also one of those books where it helps. Like I read it uh, with like a, a list of who's who mm. and making notes about that, and I, I strongly recommend it because yeah. people who are related have similar names in this, and yeah. just helps. Yeah, I did make a little note as I was reading so that I could (laughs) it would help me a little bit the other interesting thing I find about this book is kind of how queer it was when I read it because Mm. it's often talked about as a a love story between you know a a boy and a girl and it is insofar as Bao Yu is 
a boy and Yu is a girl and that is the central thread that connects it. Mm. He's a stone and um, because the dew on his on, on the stone kind of falls on the flower, mm-hmm. there is this debt of tears that the flower owes the stone and that she will repay and it's all very tragic. And again, that's, that's actually quite a common like backstory where you were animals or some other inhuman thing um, is is an, is not an uncommon kind of um, backstory to give characters. Mm. And the whole stone flower love story gets referenced in a, a lot of other places, including um, in kind of modern fantastical media. Mm-hmm. That's just a classic pairing. It's now it's just a classic pairing. Stone flower. <laughs> yes. Which they are genderless <laughs> objects, so, you know. <laughs> they are genderless objects, and, and they acquire gender right. when they incarnate. But what is really interesting is, so there are a couple of scenes that kind of really leap out, partly because he has a best friend who does tragically die quite early on. I think we read that chapter. I think at the end of 18 is when there's... His friend dies at the end of 16, and then in 17, he's sad about it. And his dad's like, no, 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 write some poems instead. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) But we didn't read the chapters where the friend is introduced and so on. Yes, um, he's he's introduced earlier. Yes. Yes, at Sinjong is... um, they they are very, very close, for example, um, and that relationship has a, a physical dimension that the book kind of is quite coy about, mm. but is very present, where at, at the end of chapter 15, uh, Tin Zhong kind of fancies uh, a nun, mm. and, and Bao Yu's, like, you know, egging him on, but also at the same time saying, like, oh, you owe me one for letting you, you know, get away with it. Um, you could repay me when we're, like, sharing our sharing a sleeping bag basically interesting and it's kind of this recurring thing in this book where kind of bao yu is just a boy kind of who's overflowing with affection and love for people around him um and he has a a a long-standing friendship with a um um, basically a drag act, like a, a female impersonator mm. who is like the favorite actor of this of this prince. He, he comes um, he comes up later and they exchange they essentially exchange sashes, which which is kind of a form of underwear, mm. which again becomes a, a very intimate act. And the other thing that kind of really leapt out at me um, is that when he first meets Daoyu, um, he has a temper tantrum about the fact that he asked Daoyu if she has a piece of jade, mm. because he has a piece of jade, because he was born with a piece of jade in his mouth. And she tells him that she doesn't. And then he has this big temper tantrum about how the fact that no one has a piece of jade. Mm-hmm. But when he says no one, he means none of the girls that he's friends with, mm-hmm. none of the maids who he admires and looks after him. Um, n- not his mother, his, or, you know, the grandmother, the matriarchal family, none of them have this, have a piece of jade. Which means that it can't be all that good because they're so good. Yeah, because they're so right, good. Right. Why, 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 why won't you have one too? It's obviously a curse. It's terrible. And, you know, he, he yeah. starts hating mm-hmm. on it. And his grandmother then, he says, you know, gets really anxious, offended, like, you know, treasures it and tells him that it's a treasure. And... It's one of those extremely Freudian scenes. Mm. Once I saw it as kind of very Freudian. Yeah, I I (laughs) noticed that. Do you mean it it feels like... Do you think the jade is a penis or is it masculinity? (laughs) Is it very... It feels like you're talking about a penis, but maybe (laughs) I'm wrong. Um, And it's it's one of those scenes. And by the same token, Mm -hmm. like, for example, Bao Yu's attraction to femininity. He really likes makeup. Mm -hmm. And he likes playing with makeup and girls. Early things and they're and everyone's like yes 
This means he's such a womanizer. He likes to yes. wear makeup. And, <laughs> and that's like, what I thought was so strange about the sex scene. It's like everybody's saying, like, he just loves girls. He wants to hang out with girls. He doesn't want to study. He wants to hang out with girls. But he, he doesn't do— He thinks men are gross and women are wonderful. Right, but he doesn't have any design, like sexual thoughts or anything at this point until they make him. So it's almost like, like a weird scared straight by a fairy kind of thing. Like— <laughs> I don't know. That's might be reading too much into it, but it's almost this feeling where his desire to be feminine mm-hmm. or at least mm-hmm. be adjacent to femininity is interpreted repeatedly by different characters as a desire to have sex with women rather than necessarily become one. And obviously, you know, the, oh, am I really, do I want to be you or do I want to bang you is a dynamic that is very familiar to the the modern mind. Like, it would not be the first (laughs) time people wonder about this. Um, Have you ever read um, a writer called Andrea Longchu? um, No. Yeah, so, but, so she's a trans woman, started like writing a lot about that. And she wrote this wonderful essay that was published um, called On Liking Girls. And that was my first introduction to her. And it was that same idea, this idea of do I admire women because I want you or because I want to be you and trying to, you know, parse those two things out. So I felt like that just sounded... Why not both? Yeah, why not both? (laughs) And also, like you said, that's kind of something that's been echoing within a lot of people since the beginning of time. Like, this isn't a brand new idea, and it's kind of interesting that this older story maybe gets at that idea. I mean, it's, it's even present in a sort of, like, uncomfortable... Like, um, I was thinking, like, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend has a song, um, mm. Girl Crush, when she was like, oh, yes, I've just got a... I, I, I really want to, like crawl into your skin and become you because you're so cool but like in a cute girly way but also in this kind of weird sexual tensiony way not a buffalo bill way it's a it's a cute way yeah and, and certainly like if you contrast Bao Yu's relationships with girls that he he thinks are so cool, it, it comes across as very different to the way mm-hmm. other men in the sto- in a story predate on women. Like mm-hmm. it, it it goes very poorly for a lot of them. Mm. But yeah, uh, chapter three. Yeah, we could talk about chapter three. Oh, the the one thing I wanted to say about chapter three, Theo, is that um, the main female love interest, Dai Dai Yu, she is taken to her wealthy grandmother's house mm-hmm. by the guy who I thought would be the main character of the entire book, but he then kind of disappears. <laughs> but when she ah. arrives, there's sort of a butler's situation going on where she says like, wow, even the like the lowest servants here are very, very wealthy and live lives of ease and luxury. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so her mother dies and so they have to take her yes. to her grandmother's house and there she meets all of her cousins and aunts and uncles. And, and the main character... The actual main character. Bao Yu, right. She meets a really, really cool female cousin, Wang Shi Feng, uh, which, Jeanette, you'll have to correct me <laughs> as far as pronunciation goes. But that woman's awesome, and she didn't really come back in the chapters that we read. No, and they mentioned that she was kind of raised as a boy almost. Like, not yeah. as a boy, but alongside boys. And I was like, gosh. She had a boy's name, and she was very boisterous and making a lot of, like, crude <laughs> jokes at yes. her husband's yeah. expense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, no, Si Fang is fantastic. Um, you should definitely read um, 
11 and 12. Oh, okay. I, I deeply regret not telling you to read them now. Maybe in a few months we'll read those and we'll check back in and do another episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, YC yeah. Fang is, is fantastic. Um, she, she's a standout character. Um, and I think uh, especially when you kind of over-focus on the bow you die you love story as this kind of if, as mm. a centerpiece, you you kind of lose sight of characters like Si Fang, who is just this kind of force of nature. Mm. And yeah, like, uh, and, and she again, she's kind of like almost the other half of that kind of that sort of gender queer aura to the book where she's mm-hmm. in, she's very masculine and she's very ambitious she just rides roughshod over her husband mm. who right. is also a dick um <laughs> though you know he's a man whose surname is dia so that is a very consistent trend in this book that's the powerful family right all of the all the guys in that family one of the yeah. men are trash like that is that is yeah. the state of the of this book. i'm sorry except the yeah. main character he's great because <laughs> he's uh yeah i mean wh- he's a stone there he's is certain stone. ambiguity to his greatness like whether or not mm. he learns his lesson um he he doesn't mm. you know he, he does not study very hard his dad doesn't think he's great <laughs> his dad is not a big fan of him and <laughs> yeah. and you know he he arguably cannot save the family by himself mm. sorry I, i'm kind of subtweeting this uh retelling of it um so there's a uh, pauline chen wrote a kind of a retelling of story of the stone and it's it's basically just the love story with some sifang chapters mm. and she is not a fan of Bao Yu. Oh, <laughs> um, at all. It was it was a very interesting read because she saw him as very masculine oh. and very kind of like a bully, like physically. And it was mm. very it was a very surreal reading experience because it was just the entire time going like, really, really. And then when you're introduced to him, you get introduced to him as like this little tornado that's just going around and he is destructive and physically aggressive and you see that the very first time that he throws the jade on the floor yeah Yeah. but i i feel like that doesn't really continue very much like he's often described as gentle after that so maybe that was kind of a fake out that they do (laughs) when he's first introduced i don't know oh uh chapter five the dream sequence did you want to talk about that a little bit yes because i think you said that was like a really famous scene i think when i set this reading i had this idea where you were kind of reading a lot of the this is what the book is about in hopes of kind of Mm. guiding you into it and i am slightly regretting that decision because it actually doesn't give you (laughs) as much to talk about as if i made you read about the man who wanked himself to death (laughs) you could just tell us your favorite excerpts (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it's it's yeah. very famous because it, it's it's always very referenced for this very elaborately constructed dream world which he steps into, which kind of explains again this kind of idea of love being an illusion mm. and one that he's going to be very embroiled in, and perhaps arguably the idea that you know he will as a stone that he will learn something from this or maybe he doesn't and what does lust mean like Mm -hmm. the lust of the mind but like the lust of the flesh and you know what Mm -hmm. what is is the stone committing a sin Mm -hmm. and what does that mean Mm. like the fairy disenchantment says you're the most lustful person i've ever met and he says i don't understand how and she says well there's lots of different kinds of lust (laughs) yeah yeah he meets a fairy and i think the fairy says like you're ancestors asked me to fix you they said 
can you shock the silliness out of this boy for us? And I agreed. So the way I'm going to do that is by taking you to this beautiful realm. Here's my little sister. You're going to marry. Yeah, yeah. you're going to have <laughs> sex with this young fairy girl, and you're going to listen to all this amazing music, and you're going to see all these wonderful things, and that's going to make you be less silly. <laughs> Don't they foreshadow it as saying, like, he doesn't realize how close to, like, mortal danger he is? So is that the danger that, that she leads him to? Is she tricking him? I feel like I may not have understood. At the same time, he also sees a bunch of, like, scary things. Like, they mm-hmm. they have, like, the wolves and tigers prowling and, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's the whole, like, here's the ford of error and, you know, you, you have that mm-hmm. juxtaposition of the sexy times and also de- mm-hmm. death. He reads a book about the 12 beauties and their little poems and each poem is like, this is the bad thing that happens to her this is the bad thing that happens to her this one is okay this one has a bad thing i feel like there was maybe two but probably just one girl where she didn't have just a tragic end there were also just um these really funny like little departments that he would walk by and uh, i'm trying to find some but it would be like the names the department of cruel rejection yes the department of early morning weeping the department of late night sobbing the (laughs) things like this yeah the department she's like a fairy of love of some kind so like that's her deal, her purview. The idea that, like, all human relationships are predestined, so there's, like, a department somewhere that, like, writes it all out, Mm -hmm. that writes down fate. Now you know who to be mad at, right, Theo? (laughs) Right. Like, everything's an illusion because, actually, there's this other realm, that this higher realm that's kind of controlling everything, almost for their amusement, it seems like, or maybe that's just because that's how it's fated, but... But it's also kind of, like, bureaucratic? But it's intensely bureaucratic. (laughs) Yeah. Like, (laughs) very bureaucratic. (laughs) That's kind of, like, the the very commonly made observation that because um, Chinese society is very bureaucratic, Mm. because there's the civil service, the exams, and... Mm -hmm. Like this whole the great machinery of government. Mm. Because of this, um, when they imagine heaven or write about heaven, <laughs> it's also just intensely bureaucratic. <laughs> there is like the ghost police who'll show up to arrest you if you accidentally burn a warrant. Um, there, there are oh loads gosh. and loads of stories about the intensely bureaucratic nature of of gods and like divinities and yeah. and like you know, to a certain extent it's because they're satirizing their own bureaucracy mm. but there's also a sort of as above so below feeling of like oh you can't yeah. imagine a heaven that isn't right. just full yeah. of right. cabinets and right. excel spreadsheets yeah yeah, little bureaucrats running around there's a, a russian <laughs> novel that did kind of the same thing called donalov the violist and it's it's basically about the demons and how they also are it again maybe the same idea like mm. the soviet union this is a soviet novel so mm. like everything's kind of very organized and also maybe a little bit evil in that case and <laughs> they get to kind of go into all the same sort of whimsical names for all the departments mm. so i like seeing that jackie's full of the references this week yeah. sorry it's reminding me of so many things i think it's because <laughs> it must have inspired a lot of things but i mean it's just funny like i i would have thought that was like a i mean I'm, the thing that came to my mind was the the movie beetlejuice right? <laughs> okay. um, and, but like it just seems like a more recent kind of idea in, in my mind to have a bureaucracy in these things that seem like they should be divine or fantastical yeah. or something. Maybe like that's that. what I feel like I, when I'm referencing. It feels like there's a lot of stuff that I would think is, like Theo said, more of a recent idea. Mm. So I'm surprised to see it popping up. It's very fresh. 
there's a there's a Latin book uh, written by a Welshman, uh, the uh, courtiers' trifles during the thirteenth century. It's a medieval one, where mm. um, where he likens court life to ha- the circles of hell. <laughs> so like the, this idea that like you know the the fantastical supernatural worlds mirroring kind of temporal society, right. especially power structures, is is like you could you can argue it's universal hmm. like chapter five is one of those chapters where again it doesn't it arguably doesn't come up again <laughs> he doesn't yeah. think yeah. back to like oh yes i read a prophecy i could solve this plot because um, he didn't get any of it i mean he didn't understand <laughs> yeah it didn't uh, he just like wakes up all of a sudden really? that, that's the conclusion is just oh you showed me a lot of stuff well he wakes up and then and then immediately has sex with his maid uh. Yes, aroma. Oh, that's what you yeah. wanted to talk about, correct, Jackie? Chapter six. I don't think that I wanted to talk she, about it. I'm she just read saying. the part. He has sex for the first time, and Jackie's like, "Oh my gosh, I have to see where this goes." <laughs> well, he, <laughs> let me read the next chapter. No, I don't remember what led into it. I think it was just reminding me of of other books, and I would, I just got so excited. Yeah. Tell us about the next chapter because I haven't read it. He wakes up from his dream, and his like <laughs> nurse ma- he you know he has all these maids, and they help him get into bed. They help him get dressed, and things that you wouldn't think people normally need help with but (laughs) his maid aroma is her name and he named her that her real name is pearl but he decided he wanted to name her aroma instead and she's like one year older than him and he wakes up and she's dressing him and go ahead uh notices that he's had a nocturnal emission and then is like what is this and then he's like i don't know and then they just start banging like i feel like it is kind of graphic like it's kind of a i mean it's definitely a power differential thing because it's like she understands she was given to him by his grandmother just to be his so she kind of just gives into it Mm -hmm. but i mean he wakes up from the dream and i feel like at least he's immediately er like learned that lesson which is that i guess a man takes what he wants i don't know if that's the lesson or if it was something else (laughs) yeah um, yeah, um, aroma is there. Could there was no way to explain that that wasn't incredibly awkward. <laughs> no, uh, they, yeah, they, they bang. Um, yeah, why don't you take another go at it? Jack? <laughs> no, thanks. I'm good. I'm good. Take that out of the podcast. I just wanted to tell you where this came from. Theo, he has a wet dream, then he bangs. Yeah, that's what Jackie really wanted you to know about. I think that's not <laughs> the point. <laughs> yeah, like it, it's the power differential between a lot of these the relationships in this. Like aromas is probably the most awkward um for like a modern mm. reader because mm-hmm. this is a society with slavery mm-hmm. and whilst it's not chattel slavery like you know american chattel slavery um it, it is a form of ownership and buying and selling of humans and it is normal because it is normal in the society that this was written in blah 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 uh, but mm-hmm. but it is also they are also very bounded in specific ways that um chattel slavery is not kind of like in the odyssey right yeah and i don't want to say like you know this it's not a this makes it okay but it, it's it's trying to the, trying to get one to the lens of understanding the background to it right. and it's it's also a society where you know your parents in a way owned you and have the right to sell you mm-hmm. the the personhood is you don't own yourself in a way that is is quite uncomfortable to a modern reader right. and again it's just one of those things that kind of makes it very strangely compelling to me where you kind of encounter these moments which feel startlingly modern and fresh and relevant and it's like i know that feeling and then the next you know next few pages it's like oh this is written by a society with a completely different morality to me mm-hmm. and a completely different idea of what isn't isn't romantic 
romantic or acceptable. We've read a couple of a couple of the older books where we're just where at least I have said I know that I could not live in this society. Like it, it's just so bizarre to me. Like Beowulf and the Odyssey, just the morality of those worlds. It's so alien that it literally does to me feel like I'm almost like I'm reading a sci-fi story and those are hmm. actual aliens. <laughs> Whereas like with this, it's like I could maybe be Shi Feng, but other than that, I don't know <laughs> if I would enjoy being many of the other women. <laughs> I'm going to make a guess. You wouldn't enjoy being her by the end of the book. That's my yeah. guess based on yeah. all the other women. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that seems to be the case. Yeah. But, you know, YOLO. <laughs> YOLO is not true if you're the stone. That is true. Well, anyone. Like, this is a setting with reincarnation. Yeah, oh. I guess that's true. <laughs> so one of the kind of um, interesting things about the, just a side note about names is that um, there was a conscious decision that kind of upper class people w- would be named, their, their names would be transcribed. So you'd be like, be written as kind of Sifeng, Baoyu and so forth. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, names of servants would be kind of translated. Mm-hmm. So tea leaf, um, aroma, um, sky bright, pearl. pearl. Mm-hmm. Names of actresses would be French. Names of um, nuns. nuns and clergy, like ecclesiastical people, would be Latin. Mm-hmm. It, it's one of those things that is not a terrible decision and it makes it slightly easier to follow who is who. Yes, especially since we were jumping around a little bit. So I would see a character I hadn't met before, but I could immediately say like, oh, this is a nun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, it's another reason why I think this translation is a little bit more approachable because some of the other translations just render everyone's names in pinyin, um, which make it a little bit harder to follow. Mm-hmm. Roma's name, though, is a is an, an odd little pun. It's it's a very so her name is um, literally translated means um, assaulter. Oh, <laughs> like assaults. Assault. Sort of like attacking. Oh, yeah, oh. like attacker. Um, because her surname is Flowers, so her full name would be Flowers assaults you with their smell. Oh. Oh. Like a, attack of the flowers. Attack of the flowers. Oh. With their smell. Right. Yeah. Therefore, aroma. Yeah. Okay. So the yeah. translation so, kind of gave you the end result of this long right. walk of associations. <laughs> Is that to kind of show off like, oh, Baoyu's so smart, he came up with this pun? I don't think it's smart so much as it's a very odd joke of his. Like, it's to show his very odd sense of humor. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's not clever so much as weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It says he just takes it from a line of poetry and he's like, oh, flowers, odor, aroma. Yeah. Right? Like, But it, it's flowers assaulting you with their aroma. Yeah. And it's a very <laughs> odd name because they go around calling her like assault people. Oh. <laughs> That's because we, they don't use her surname in daily life. Yeah. Mm. I can't remember if it's in the section I, you read, but like his mum's like, that's a really weird name. Like, what? Why is that her name? And then they explain that it's because of this oh. this joke. Okay, that makes more sense because there was a character who was like, "Oh, aroma, so strange." But to me, I was thinking like, "Why is aroma such a weird name? All of like all the servants have names." But like this. Sky Bright is not right. <laughs> but now that I see that the name was like assaulting people i see why someone would (laughs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) um but it's also kind of emphasizes aroma's kind of odd status in the story Mm -hmm. because of that kind of personalness of it um Mm -hmm. everyone ends up with like half a dozen names like they have um they end up giving themselves um art names um for for the Mm -hmm. poetry club later on and so on like it, it is a chinese culture is a culture with a lot of names. Unless you are of higher status of someone, you're not actually meant to use their full name to their face. Mm. It's it's a society with a lot of 
courtesy names and um, nicknames, um, because to use someone's real name is is this kind of intolerable intimacy. People do have like are given names when they change jobs, when they again like it. It's sort of it, it's counter to this kind of feeling of like oh well you know it's like oh well you know how dare you give me a name a, a new name that's that's you're trying to overwrite my personality except it's set in a culture where it is the norm to do so and in fact everyone's name and consequently identity is fluid in that sense mm. like he asks her um if she has a a zi, for example in in the book and he offers to call um uh, Bao Yu calls her Frowner. Oh, yeah. Because she frowns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's giving nicknames left and right. Yep, he's just nicknames left and right. Um, <laughs> Is that like a like a comment on his, his status? Yeah, that he can just go around giving people new names. It is power, but it's also, to me, it's also intimacy and like connection. Like he's seeing their true... Like it, it's, it's also a gift. Mm. So he's not just going up to strangers and giving them a new nickname. It's like someone who's very familiar with. With Dai Yu, it, it, is, it is his over familiarity (laughs) but he was also like he was also hitting her up with the when have i ever seen you before Um, yeah and they are supposed to be like destined lovers they've they've met before as the stone and the flower like you can't be overly familiar (laughs) you will get very sick of them (laughs) whinging at each other um if you if you read ahead um they oh no they do not have the easiest of relationships i had a dream that i just realized that i think was a dream and it wasn't actually part of the book tell me if this is in the book, but I think I had a dream about this last night. That <laughs> this is a recurring segment, just so you know. Discern if it's a dream or not. <laughs> is it? Jackie <laughs> likes to talk about her dreams. <laughs> I don't know. I think I had a dream that Bao Yu and Aroma get together and stay together. And That's Dai dream. Yu is not in the picture. I, well, then I dreamed this because I just, years go by and they're still together and they're just like, I don't want to be with anybody else. I want to be with Aroma. That never happens. Why did you dream fanfic of this? I don't know. Why do I don't have a choice about it? That is definitely, that, that, that is a fanfic. <laughs> um, I remember even wow. the colors and like the outfits and everything. And it was very vivid. I didn't realize it wasn't real until just now. Aroma and Bao you do have quite a special relationship throughout the book. Well, that's good. I'm glad it doesn't it wasn't just a one and done. <laughs> um, spoilers. Uh, apologies, Rachel. Feel free to cut this. Um, Guests are allowed to spoil. <laughs> it's just hosts are not. Uh, um, basically, they his mother once um, thinks Aroma would make a good concubine or like second wife for him. Uh, and mm-hmm. they and basically kind of tries to manage that to be the case, but then doesn't want it to be official because they think he wouldn't listen to a wife and he would listen to a maid who is sort of his friend as well, much more than he would listen to a wife. So mm-hmm. they kind of up her salary and up her status amongst the servants, but don't tell him that that's what they're doing. Mm. So she kind of becomes his unofficial concubine little wife as i think the technical term Mm -hmm. lesser wife um i can't remember how um hawks translates it chamber wife actually i think that's what what he calls it but the fact that she doesn't officially marry him is kind of what saves her in the end oh no when things go awry she's not tied to him so she she doesn't have a terrible ending but um in fact she 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 ends up she does far better out of this book than many other people but yeah they 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 are together Hmm. for as long as the book lasts for dream come true um but yes sorry uh, 16 to 18 uh that the last chunk that i made you read yes so theo jeanette told us that 16 through 18 was kind of like a self-contained mini arc Mm. so if we read that we'd be able to 
sort of see an actual storyline. I see. As opposed to mm-hmm. kind of getting introductions to different things. So, but you kind of have to introduce who Jin Jong is, the right? The friend, the main the character's friend. friend who we discussed earlier who dies. And this little arc is about how Bao Yu, the main character, his oldest sister has become a concubine, like one of the emperor's concubines at this point. And she hasn't been able to come home and see the family, but there's a new law that says now concubines are allowed to visit their families occasionally. So this whole arc is the family building an addition onto the property for her and then going around and coming up with names and poems for all of the new things they've added. (laughs) And then she visits and that's the arc. (laughs) Yeah, but they describe everything in the house like when like when Dayu arrives and I guess other times too like on this on the left hand side there's an inscription that says this and on the right there's an inscription that says that I was like I wish we still decorated our houses that way yeah there's a there's a bit that I thought Jackie would love where they literally they're talking about like we don't want to name these things because it's going to be hers and that would be rude but someone says sure it's beautiful but if you don't give it a name and write a nice little poem it's impossible to fully appreciate its beauty (laughs) Which I thought was very uh, revealing of kind of the aesthetic values of their society. Right. Oh, also just like personification basically is is kind of important. Yeah. I I really enjoy Bao Yu's little rant about how like um, nothing in the garden is natural, that it's all... Yes. It's beautiful and it's aesthetically pleasing because it is unnatural, because they went in and rearranged everything to be beautiful. Right, mm. which I thought was kind of Austin-esque of him in terms of, I, you know, sometimes you'll have Austin characters talking about like, oh, you know, this is, this person's grounds, they, they're, they look natural, but, you know, they've clearly been cultivated. Yeah. But that's better than grounds that haven't been cultivated at all or grounds that have been cultivated too much where it's too obvious. Mm. He tells his dad that he likes a pavilion more than a fake farmhouse even though the dad says like well this farmhouse is much more natural and he's like well the pavilion's better because it's more obvious like both of them are fake yeah but this one at least isn't trying to pretend that it's not Mm. right like he wouldn't be a fan of like rustic weddings with like the (laughs) the burlap sacks and the mason jar drinks right he wouldn't like that yeah, I that's guess. Un, that's unnaturally natural. <laughs> <laughs> Too much fake natural. Don't invite Bao Yu to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How old are these characters? I can never figure it out. How old is Dai Yu? Very good question. <laughs> are they like 13, 14, 7? I don't know. We don't know. There are people who have worked out meticulous timelines for this. Um, those people are, they're not wrong, but I think they're wrong. <laughs> they're um, wrong in spirit. <laughs> it's unclear what how old they are. If you follow the timelines, for example, Bao Yu would be something like six when he first has sex, and that feels weird. Also, they're very well-spoken for six-year-olds. Yeah, so it feels like it that can't be right, basically. And, and in my theory, they're young. Bao Yu is not an adult. I thought he was like 13 or 14. Somewhere around there. (laughs) They call him a little boy. Would you call a 14 year old a little boy in this time period? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I guess it depends on how big of a deal, like how big of a deal and how hard of a line coming of age is, right? It is a very hard line. Okay. Because he needs to move out of the women's quarters. So regardless of his age, if he's still living the lifestyle of a little boy, yeah. that's how he would be seen. He normally would have been moved out, I thought. Yes. But his grandmother let him stay. Yeah. So he is older. 
But okay. it seems more like you're a little boy if you're acting like one. <laughs> it doesn't have to do with your age. <laughs> In my head, um, Dayu arrives when she's around six or at least like under 10. Uh. At some point they become over 10 and that's about as concrete my brain will go. And by the end <laughs> of the book, like when they come of age, then they're over 16 probably, but I'm not like, I, I don't feel comfortable, like, saying anything more concrete than that. They just don't... Mm. They're the age they you feel like they are. So you don't... There's no point where they're all gathered around a birthday cake with his age <laughs> written out in candles, and everyone's like, oh, wow, you're finally 17. Congratulations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but even if they do, you'd have to work backwards, and they don't have concrete enough numbers or dates to make that work. Yeah. There were sections where the author has very obviously added chunks and moves things around mm. timelines don't work like people who have spent time doing timelines go and then things go weird around here because there are too many winters <laughs> so oh, in my, yeah. like that, those are the ages i would say they are yeah like there's times where i picture dayu as like 14 or 15 and there's times where i picture her as like 12 and there's like same with Yu, like there's times i picture him as literally a small child and other times it seems like he's a teenager like he really it, it's just they change and <laughs> depending on what they're doing it seems like like given like how i have this kind of dreamlike feeling to the book yeah. i think that's not an unreasonable way to read them mm -hmm. especially since we have very different ideas of like what is appropriate behavior or what children should or shouldn't sound like mm -hmm. like when when Yu is like rattling off poems it feels like he can't possibly be like i don't know 10 right but he is like he's the lead in an epic fantasy almost so i guess yeah. it's kind of like it's hard it's hard to make him yeah. <laughs> stick to what he really could do yeah like little little kids today can't rattle off poems but probably lots of them could <laughs> you know when it was studied when it was valued well thank you for validating that i'm not an idiot for not knowing because <laughs> i felt the same way when i didn't know how uh, Grendel looked at. I was like, well, I must have messed this up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so they have yeah the um, the garden gets built. Um, the garden's quite fun because it's it's a very iconic location. Um, people actually built one and filmed the eighties version of uh, Dream of Red Mansion. There, mm. it's still in Beijing. There is a there is a garden. Mm. It, it's also a very odd garden because uh, there's a character who kind of recurringly tries to draw it but fails. I am very in, enamored of the idea that it is impossible to draw the garden in a sort of Escherian way. It's an, <laughs> it's an unreal place. Um, but they can walk around in it and experience it, but just not reproduce it. <laughs> but it's almost infinitely big. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to ask if there's been a lot of fan art about the gardens that we read about here. I'm sure there has been some, but I wouldn't know how to look for it, you know, in English. There's a lot of fan art of the women like i think it's it's quite a popular thing to draw mm. i think with the the garden itself um the fact that they made a tv adaption and built the garden that kind of locked mm. the idea of what people what it looks like in their heads like the way um okay the way hogwarts like got locked into a certain look once the movies came along Mm -hmm. There have been two kind of big adaptions of Dream of Red Mansions, one in the 80s and one in the 2010s. The uh, 80s version is is kind of like the very big, iconic one. It's notable because um, because it was kind of this big, lavish production for its time, um, and people still kind of think about it. Um, it. It's also kind of infamous because it's also what made Daiju kind of a very cursed role, because um, the woman who played it, um, she, she died quite young. Mm. The kind of idea that Dayu 
the role of Dayu is like like a cursed role that that it is unlucky to take. Mm-hmm. Kind of took on this kind of strange aura from that, um, and that made the huh. 2010s version kind of particularly interesting for a lot of people. Did it end up playing out for that actress as well? Not that I'm aware of. Um, it's also not a very popular version uh, because it made some very odd choices. Um, it, it's very very faithful to book um to the point that um there's a version of it on youtube where you without english subtitles but you can actually follow along reading the book watching it because it reproduces the conversation so exactly interesting and people didn't like that people did not like that it was it was almost (laughs) unwatchable (laughs) maybe it's like people always say that they want things to be close to the book but if it really were to happen it would be weird (laughs) (laughs) i i I stress it is weird that is its problem it is a great study aid but probably unwatchable Mm. for anyone else (laughs) um but yeah um what, what did you make of like the the great family reunion to me his dad seems like an asshole. Is that how people see him, or am I just, is my perspective totally different? I see him as an asshole, but... Okay. (laughs) The dad keeps telling the son, okay, come up with a name for this thing and write a poem, and then the son does it, and all of the dad's scholar friends are like, wow, 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 he's so great, and every single time the dad says, oh, that sucks, we'll never use that. And then moves on. And he it, this repeats like eight times. Just I, And I don't know why the dad's like that. <laughs> and why does he keep trying to please him? I mean, after, you know, but that's what kids do, right? Like well, they at never... one point he tries, he literally tries to run away from his dad and his dad like grabs him and says like, no, no, no. You think you can stop writing poems? You can't. You have to write more poems. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I, I am not a fan of his dad. Okay. Uh, he, he, he gets worse. Oh god! I shouldn't plan on raising my children that way by just forcing them to write poems constantly <laughs> and, and criticizing <laughs> every poem. <laughs> god, that was my plan. I have to rethink my whole. The narrator says that his dad enjoy enjoys them and is proud and thinks like, "Oh, my son's good at writing poems," but he never says it out loud. He's just every time is like, "That was a bad poem. <laughs> not a great." <laughs> but I feel no. like that's an archetypal type of parent, right? Like yes. Parents who yeah. are never pleased. Are pleased but don't want to say it because they don't want you to get complacent, right? Like yeah. yeah. He, he also has a stick up his butt, so. Yeah. That too. Yeah, that would be an easier way to say it. <laughs> he was mad that his son wasn't a nerd, basically. I'd be mad. But then he was happy that the son could write good poems, but he was still so mad that he didn't like studying, that he didn't want to compliment his poetry i guess i'm not really sure the dynamic (laughs) he's like mad that he's naturally good at it and he wanted him to be have to work to be good at it he seems like he's read a lot of poetry like studied poetry it's it's i think it's a it's almost a framework that's like less familiar to us here where art and poetry isn't studying it's like that's the fun stuff Mm -hmm. that's like aesthetic beauty and so forth and the thing that you should be studying is is how to pass the exams so you should be studying ethics and morality and like ritual propriety and things that will help you pass the exam and become a civil servant and Mm. bring glory to the family blah 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 you know that that kind of that that career path uh, and that involves reading the classics, um, but not like the book of poetry, which is technically in the classics, but it's it's like it's fun. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that like to a certain extent, um, 
like a modern reader looking at it go like, but poetry studying, like he's still a nerd. She's just the wrong kind of nerd. But these two things are seen as kind of diametrically opposed because one is all about like the rigid correctitude of kind of hierarchy and understanding your place in the world and kind of like moral correctness Mm. and exams. Objectivity. Whereas the other is kind of like, art and beauty and and sort of pleasure Mm -hmm. like his his ability to write poetry is kind of an offshoot of like his his desire to kind of pleasure seek and Mm -hmm. sort of a a sensual nature which which is again Mm. like the opposite of whereas we look at it's like but but surely like these two things are actually the same and they don't parse it that way (laughs) well it's weird that he's a literal rock yeah like you would think he'd be into the (laughs) hard stuff (laughs) <laughs> nice pun, Jackie. But um, I don't know. I mean, you could, you could, you could think of it that way, maybe. But I don't know. He's like uh, that. There's, there's not much artful about a rock. Is that what you're saying? I mean, there's nothing <laughs> fluid or there's nothing subjective about a rock. It's a metaphor for solidness. Right. But it's also a metaphor for uselessness. Yeah. In this case, because he is useless. Poor little guy. He was left over from being useful. Because he never got used, yeah, even as a rock. I want to know, why did this goddess make one too many rocks? Just so that there would be a main character in the story? (laughs) Because, you know, it's normal, though. Like, you know, it's why a baker's dozen is 13 and not 12. What if if she messed one up? Exactly. You always make one extra in case you mess one up. I just feel so bad for this little rock. I feel like I, I would just tell her, wait. If you need more, make more at the end. <laughs> but, oh, one other interesting thing, Jackie, I don't know if you were thinking about this, but whenever he and the old scholars were writing poems, it seemed like almost every time they wrote a poem, they would have to say, like, the reason this poem is good is because I'm referencing a different poem. Yeah. So he would come up with a poem and someone would say, like, okay, but what are you referencing? And then he would tell them and they would be like, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good job. Great wow. poem. <laughs> yeah. If you did that now, it'd be like, okay, but what are you referencing? And you kind of, like, ashamedly turn your head aside and say it. And they're like... <laughs> like, oh, derivative. But you yeah. would... It's like they had to be derivative or people yeah. thought it wasn't good. That seems like also just a way of connecting. There was a part, I think, in the introduction where he talks about a poem that was used to describe one of the girls and then there's a footnote that's like he's referencing this and this and this mm. and like you have to understand this backstory before you can even understand really this description of this girl mm. I don't know so there's just like a lot of shared knowledge that you have to have <laughs> yeah I think that that's the book in a nutshell though that like you know you just you end up so emotionally invested in it because you've spent so much time understanding all its damned references do you think to someone say like me who who doesn't get most of the references like unless i look them up like is that how most readers are coming at it these days do you think or can you still enjoy it fully without like going to all the footnotes i guess is what i'm asking well i mean this book doesn't really have that many footnotes so i think hawks very much believes that you can enjoy it without it it was translated with the goal of not having you to read footnotes Mm. i Mm. certainly get a lot out of like footnotes and and it's kind of this weird thing where some of the things in it um have become so ubiquitous in chinese culture that like modern chinese culture that it's very odd to see it here Mm. Uh, or realizing like oh right no this this is where it comes from (laughs) which i think is is not an uncommon experience Mm -hmm. that's what makes something canon right that's kind of what we've been talking about 
like something that influences. Yeah, but I don't think it has necessarily that same relationship like in in English. Mm. So I, I think it, it doesn't have that kind of canonical status. Um, I think it's it's hard to get into. Like I think like there are like half a dozen like articles which are all like, why has no one read this book? Um. <laughs> about this book yeah so I, I feel like you you've gotten way more out of it than than i i i, I was really worried it would just kind of come across <laughs> as gibberish but i'm glad you find so much of it kind of like yeah. amusing and strange and that in some ways because like you haven't really encountered say you know bureaucratic fantastical worlds before that 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 itself is like enough of a novelty <laughs> to be entertaining is his poetry good by the way because the my ex, my main experience with like Chinese classical poetry is Li Bai or Li Po, which I know he's like, you know, he's like the big daddy in terms of poetry. <laughs> well, he wanted to bang the moon, so. Yes. <laughs> you don't? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> Who doesn't? And I, I read like, I read a biography of him and some mm -hmm. different translations of his poetry and stuff. And I know that, you know, when you're studying Chinese classical poetry, he's one of the main mm. ones. And I think it's great even in translation, which I, it makes me really sad to read poetry in translation because I know that I can never appreciate it <laughs> as much as I wish that I could without hearing, you know, a bunch of backstory and explanations on like different etymologies and stuff, mm. which right. takes away from being able to actually enjoy it in the moment. So I guess what I'm wondering is, is this character good at writing poems <laughs> allegedly yes okay <laughs> because some of them are in the book though right do people consider his do people consider Yu's stuff to be good yeah like i think in general like the thing about red mansion like people like it in part because they say the poems are good oh okay which maybe doesn't come across in english right like I, I, yeah i think that's one of the things that really doesn't quite translate um i'm very ambivalent about poems that rhyme in translation as well so, and um obviously hawks mm. and minford decide to go the rhyming route mm -hmm. but like uh later on um god it's like volume two or three the characters all kind of they start a poetry club and <laughs> they all write poems together and <laughs> each of them have like their own individual style and like mm. poetic obsessions and they try to write poems in each other's styles and so forth and this is like oh i like that like a, a huge chunk of the book um and it goes on for a while but it, it's very pure like <laughs> the girl who gets kidnapped uh she finally joins the poetry club and and that was a very big deal for her um, oh she does come back she does come back she does come back um she doesn't have a great time um really didn't have a great time <laughs> but she does come back Aww. and she does fulfill her ambition of joining poetry club so um so that's nice for her that's pretty cute before um other terrible things happen um Aww. her name is a pun on like so piteous so little foreshadowing quality foreshadowing there um there a lot yeah. of names are are puns but in some ways like it's almost cheating like it's very easy to make puns in chinese the surname of the family jia means um it sounds like fake or false mm -hmm. oh. or fictional even okay and if you kind of think about like chapter five we talk about like the, the kind of the, the idea of falseness and reality fiction and reality so the, the idea of the family's name sounds like fake slash fiction mm -hmm. is kind of part of this whole, the elaborate lie of, mm. of storytelling is kind of part of the fabric of it. You could start rolling your eyes anytime. Like, it, like they're just so, so many puns. 
Um, they're all terrible. <laughs> why, why did you say puns? Are, I think you said they're like easy in Chinese. Or yeah. Why, why is that? It's just because Chinese doesn't have that many syllables. Oh, okay. Like, you know how every language has like the number of potential noises within it. Mm. Chinese just has fewer noises than other language. Okay. So there are just a lot of potential meanings to the sounds. There's just lots and lots of homophones. And obviously there are plenty in English as well, but like Chinese just has... And obviously I say Chinese because Chinese is many, like, but most of the Sino languages have quite a lot of potential puns. Okay, the lion-eating poet in the stone den. That's a Chinese poem that's the same syllable over and over and over again, but it means yes. something different. <laughs> yes. It's kind of like the thing in English where it's like buffalo, 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 but even yeah. more and with like a more varied meaning. <laughs> but but it's it's because it's just the way the language evolved. I think that that's that's it. That's the end of the passages that you've read. Um, I, I I would love to do this again in the near future yeah. with, with more of this text. I hope I've convinced you to read a bit more of it. I've enjoyed it. And see some of the even weirder bits. <laughs> I would be happy to read some more yeah. if you, because I know you said you regret telling us to read these or like you wish you'd told us other things. <laughs> if you want to tell us other things that you think we should read, Jackie and I can make a note of that and then like read them in our in our time and take notes for preparing to talk to you about it at some point in the future. Or we could reconvene just at the end of chapter, like uh, the end of volume one is also possible. Oh yeah. We've read almost half of volume one by this point, so I feel like it wouldn't be that hard to read the... Yeah. It's a pretty fast read too, I mean. I, I enjoyed reading it. I always really like reading stuff that's over, what, like 150 years old, because that's when it just gets, it just seems so different and weird to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like not not familiar at all. Whereas mm. I, I read a lot of like not okay, I won't say a lot, but for an American, I have read, relatively speaking, a lot of <laughs> modern Chinese books in translation. Those, you know, there are obviously some things that I can't personally relate to, but it's much, much more familiar than this. This is as strange to me as <laughs> the Odyssey, which is yeah. much older, but yeah. Okay, so Jeanette's computer battery just died, so they stopped recording. Uh, so, <laughs> Audience, Jeanette is saying thanks for having me yeah, on. Yeah, so you're not going to hear any more from Jeanette for the rest of this episode, but luckily, this episode's almost over. So, Also, we swear that when we pass on what she said, we're telling the truth. Wink, wink. <laughs> you're not supposed to yeah. verbally <laughs> wink, Rachel. Wait, Jeanette, I'm your favorite member of Fire the Cannon? Really? <laughs> Sorry, that was a kind of tired joke. Yeah, Jeanette's mic and laptop can't be plugged in at the same time, so that's why we had to stop lest we lose <laughs> the recording, which yeah. would have been a nightmare. One of us would have had to have played the part of Jeanette while trying to oh respond. Gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Using a British accent and sounding smart? We've never done that before. I can't do smart. I can do British. <laughs> can you? I can't. No. <laughs> I can't do anything. I would say you're smarter than you are British. <laughs> Thank you. I just want to say, Jeanette is gone at this point, but I thought they were a great guest. Very, very knowledgeable. <laughs> I'm glad that they gave me permission to make fun of the book because I'm like, there's so many funny things in it and I don't want to make fun of the book, but I want to bring up these funny things. So maybe the next episode, now that we have some like context behind the story, we can talk more 
about the funny things that happen. Yeah, yeah I thought that was a pretty good introduction for us, to be honest. I thought it was, like, I, I thought those chapter choices were pretty good. The only thing I could imagine that would be better would be us literally just reading the whole book one, which would just not have really been doable <laughs> at the time. I mean, and the kind of thing is, like, <laughs> there are so many characters that come in and go out. It's like, even if you had, if we had read all of the chapters in order mm-hmm. and not left any out, we still would probably be confused. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I yeah. think we got a pretty good feel for the for the field book nice yeah it sounds pretty cool i enjoyed it are we gonna do a mup chat or no i'm gonna do a quick mup chat on my own since you guys won't participate obviously the funniest scene would be when he goes to the fairy bureaucracy and they would all be muppets except him oh i thought you were trying to get us to replace a character with a muppet and i was like but they don't know who the characters are no no no. he this is like a muppets christmas carol situation where one person's a human Ah, okay, no. Better idea for me. everyone else is Muppets. Better idea for me right here. Go into your dream and... (laughs) Dayu's mother dies, and they bring her to her grandmother's house, and everyone in her grandmother's house is a Muppet, and she's not. And they're like, please don't feel out of place. Feel right at home. (laughs) 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 And then Yu comes up, and he's animal. And he's just like, throw the jade on the ground. And he throws the jade, and then... Dayu is like, what is going on? So, so not the wanking scene, huh? <laughs> Ooh, okay, everybody, thank you so much for listening to our, well, one, I don't know, how should I say this? Thank you for listening to one of our very special episodes, because they're all very special. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, you can reach us at firethecanonpodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook discussion group and announcement page, just Fire the Cannon Podcast. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Fire the Cannon Pod. If you would like to give us money, you can give us a couple dollars on Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com slash fire the cannon. Or if you want to make this a recurring situation, kind of like Aroma and Bao Yu <laughs> going forward. Like my dream of them that isn't real, where they stay together forever. <laughs> they're like Jackie's yeah. dream, where they're in love forever. Uh, then you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash patreon.com slash fire the cannon no podcast no pod and our website okay <laughs> and our website <laughs> is fire the pod.com and if you become a patreon donor don't forget you have, you get access to all of that bonus content we have about four hours of bonus content up there right now so theo has been so excited to say that we have four hours and i'm not sure why because it doesn't sound that impressive four but. hours well when i calculated it i was hoping it would be more impressive but um, Wait, say it by minutes. We have, uh, what? Should I say the exact number of minutes? 240 minutes of 240 content. minutes. Each better than the last. We have 14,400 seconds yeah. of bonus <laughs> content. So uh, if you want to listen to us talk about Moonstruck or Yu-Gi-Oh! or Wishbone, <laughs> then that's where to or do it. Or if you want to hear our first podcast that wasn't good and compare it no, to this podcast. It was great. What are you talking <laughs> about? Good. I just was listening to my sound quality and I was like, what oh, the was sound doing? quality, sure, but the content was amazing. That was the one that I was kind of in charge of, if you need any context audience for why she said it wasn't good. Yeah. I haven't been in charge of a podcast yet. Theo had one. Rachel has one. One day we're going to have Jackie be in charge of one mup chat here's something interesting we got a question in the fire the cannon podcast discussion group while we were talking shall we react to it live okay. wait maybe we should have jeanette answer and relay their answer well, <laughs> it's about parable of the sower so uh-huh. let's hear the question Anne catherine says catching up Anne on catherine the pods. who's that 
Uh, Anne was a classmate of mine in grad school. Take that out, Theo. A total stranger who just loves us. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Anne Catherine, catching up on the pod. Catching up on the pods. Just finished Parable of the Sower, and my question is this. What was the point of Lauren having hyper-empathy? It literally added nothing to the story, LOL. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. I'm certainly not LOLing at that. <laughs> What was the point? Because I thought it was interesting, but did it really add something to the plot? I bet it does in book two. I mean, it changed the plot. I mean, it affected Lauren's philosophy. Book two, book three, it's going to be significant. (laughs) Theo's saying it would have become important in book three. Theo knows for sure, yeah. We're going to have to respond better to that. Um, yeah, we'll actually respond better later. But um, anyway, um, should we get rid of this? We didn't even say bye now. <laughs> should we stop the recording? All right, guys, you always forget to say bye to oh, now. Oh, we, we have a history of not getting our guests to say bye now. Yep. Now it's a tradition. All right. <laughs> they can never say bye to now. <laughs> Ta-ta, Nell. Bye, Nell. Jackie? Au revoir. Nell you Bye, Nell you is that what you call her? <laughs> That's like a new asthma medicine. Bonsoir, Nellulaire.